New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Spain. Today we have two guests and we're going to be really delving into more on cybersecurity today. Next level from where we were a couple of weeks ago. Uh, great to welcome back Sean Duker, who's uh, joining us remotely from Sydney. How are you, Sean? Yeah, very good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Um, maybe a quick intro from you around where you sit in this uh, big world of, of cybersecurity. Yes, so uh, I currently work at Pelton Networks as the Regional Chief Security Officer for the Asia-Pacific and Japan region. Been with the company now for a little over six years. Uh, so my job's really to sort of go out there, uh, work with executives, big and small organizations, and, and really start to really focus on changing the narrative of what security means. So rather than an executive pointing out, well, we've got one of those boxes, or you know, we've got a security team that are focused on solving the problem, it's more around you know, what's their role in it, and, and how do we sort of help them and guide them around uh, shaping their security strategy for their organization. That's great. Well, I think um, guidance is, is definitely needed in this world at the moment, Absolutely. Uh, particularly on this uh, on this topic. Um, and from Datacom, Matthew Everts. Great to have you here, Matthew. Yeah, thanks, Paul. And maybe a, a quick intro from you as well, where you where you fit in. You're uh, reasonably new in uh, in the role at uh, Datacom. Yeah, sure. So I've been here six months. I started back in in November, uh, and it was uh, part of a change that Datacom made to bring a lot of its uh, cybersecurity capability into a single division across New Zealand. And then we also uh, cover managed security services for Australia and New Zealand as well. So I'm based down in Wellington. Uh, we have teams across Auckland, Wellington, and Christchurch, and then uh, teams obviously over in Australia as well. And we cover uh, the full range of uh, all things cybersecurity. There's not a lot we don't do. Um, and then we also have a, a physical security team as well that specialises in uh, surveillance and access control and things like that. All right. So you really you really cover a lot of bases then? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yep. And how have you found that, uh, that first six months? Because... Um, well, I was calling it Datacom. You're calling it Datacom. Have I got it right, or have you got it right, or is there, uh, or or is this a uh, an impossible question to answer? Oh, I think it's impossible. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit like whether you spell cybersecurity as two words or one. So we're I'm going with one, and and I think half of Datacom is probably going with two. But but it's it's all fine at the end of the day. What's what's your vote on that one, Sean? One or two words for cybersecurity. One word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the experts have uh, have spoken. So. That's good. Well, look, it's it's a really interesting time to be delving into this discussion. You know, we we've talked over you know many years on the New Zealand Tech Podcast about cybersecurity related topics from all sorts of uh, angles, um, but we've never had um, quite such a star-studded panel. So great to uh, great to have have you here um, as as we have done over you know this episode and the, and the one we did a couple of weeks back. So yeah, really great to be able to uh, to. to to delve in and, and I guess take a bit of a step back, look at the broader picture, uh, be strategic about these things. But we are looking at it um, in the shadow of really a, a pretty massive um, cybersecurity incident here in New Zealand. And, and when we look at uh, what Waikato uh, District Health Board have been having to deal with over the over the past week or so, um, you know, it, it's a really challenging uh, challenging episode that uh, that they're, they're having to deal with. Oh, you know, of course, with these matters, there's a fair bit that's kind of kept kept under wraps. And uh, when you've when you've got um, you know bad actors that are that are there trying to uh, extract money and so on, 
um, you're reasonably cautious around what you what you put out publicly. Is that that's pretty much the, the the norm, isn't it, Matthew? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, it's important to tell people that something's going on, um, uh, let people understand that it's being worked on and that it's got the kind of priority that it needs. Um, but then at the same time, you don't want to give uh, either the original threat actor or or other other bad actors, uh, you know, more information that 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 might help them. Yeah. Sean, what things immediately jump to your mind when one of these really sort of big, you know, public incidents is is made uh, made public? Yeah, look, for me, every time it's more a case of I think it's just yet another example that uh, we've got a an ever growing, sophisticated adversary that's actually out there, and they're looking for uh, really they're actually being opportunistic they're looking to see how they can extract some data some dollars uh anything of value from a particular organization i'm kind of in two minds sometimes around the level of information that's actually being shared i totally appreciate and you know respect probably the, both the, the comments that were sort of made around that one we don't want to give too much away around what the adversary has done or sort of feed uh you know potential sort of other challenges that that may sort of arise from any information that's shared but I also sit there and say, if we're sitting in the shadows and not sharing information, that's also playing to the, their hand. And yeah. the reality is the adversary is going to use and reuse the same techniques and tactics time and time again. So if we're not learning from that and sharing that with others, then it's a simple playbook. They can just go back time and time again to organization A, organization B, organization C without really knowing how do I defend myself. And yeah, I think yeah, that's, the, with that. and that's, a, that's a part that I'd love to work out and not to say that you know everything that we've done is wrong, but you turn and go, this is a problem that's ever been that keeps on growing. So maybe we should actually take stock in the fact that keeping a lot of information to ourselves hasn't really served us that well, and so we should change tax somehow. And maybe we could actually learn from that, and you know maybe see if we can start to reduce the uh, the overall impact that we see. I think certainly within the, within the industry, we're seeing real benefits from what Sean's talking about, where where that information is shared early within the industry, uh, you know, between trusted partners, uh, between vendors and suppliers uh, like Datacom, Palo Alto, um, that that does that does pay big dividends, and um, we are seeing more of that. But we we need we still need to do a lot more of it as well. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting point because you know I think the general public would would assume that you know everything's being being discussed to a fairly big degree but realistically an entity that gets hit there's a for better or for worse there's always that level of embarrassment you know could we have should we have done better and so you know the more you the more you reveal the more it it you know maybe puts a, a spotlight on those things that yeah in an ideal world you know you wouldn't have got hit that way but yeah, on the on the flip side, you actually talk about those things, then um, that helps a whole lot of other people get uh, get prepared. Absolutely, we saw that uh, earlier this year with the, the Microsoft Exchange vulnerability. Um, those organisations that got that information early and were able to act early uh, largely got away unscathed. And and where there were delays, uh, you know, there were there, there was a lot more compromise. Yeah, yeah. Any thoughts on um, to add on that one, um, Sean? Yeah, look, I think it's a foreseeable event that every organisation is going to be targeted. Uh, what their success rate is going to be really comes down to how have you looked at cyber as uh, cyber is a vector for good and bad things to actually you know take place. At the end of the day, it's like any other risk that a business needs to manage. So it really does come down to a question of you know when this is going to happen, not if. So how do we actually plan and prepare for that day? 
in advance. I think that's a that's a question that every organization should really be asking themselves. And I, I totally get and appreciate the fact that, you know, some people want to see this as sensitive. It might be embarrassing. Absolutely. But we've got to learn from something. Um, you know, I think the biggest thing that I've seen time and time again is when people, you know, over embellish maybe on a story on, you know, it, it's been a nation state that's attacked us. Okay. Why would a nation state attack you for number one? Number two, how do you know that a nation state's hit you when you've only found out about the breach a day or two days earlier? Now, I think about a lot of the investigations that have taken place. It takes months, many, many months to actually sort of work out who may have actually had something to do with it. And let alone, you know, half the time, attribution is a very hard game because sometimes it can be a bit of a distraction. So let's focus on the issue at hand, which is what was the problem? How did they get in? How do we close that gap? Is there a new novel technique that's actually being used? Let's actually share and disseminate that with everyone else. Because guess what? That forces the hand of the adversary to go back to the drawing board and think of a better way to actually try and launch an attack. And I'd rather make them work a little bit harder every single time as opposed to make it easier. 100%. I love it. It's a really, really good, uh, really good approach. Now, having really sort of walked through a lot of the COVID journey uh, here in Australia, New Zealand, of course, you know, other countries dealing with it as well, um, and maybe, you know, that, that journey's going to diverge a little bit in terms of how, you know, how things get back to a level of normality down under compared to, to other markets, depending on vaccines, depending on, you know, opening up of, of, of borders and so on. But we've seen some changes really from a cyber perspective in that we've had so many more people working remotely than, I mean, it's just, just complete transformation really for a lot of businesses and um, so many organisations that, that I've talked to in the technology space uh, just talking about, man, we're doing, we're doing crazy numbers, we're, we're offering so many services, we're selling in all sorts of new things that we weren't selling uh, prior to COVID. We've done all this uh, digital transformation. Now, I tend to look at those things and think, well, you probably should have actually, those things should have been done ahead of COVID anyway arguably but if it took COVID to get the transformation then uh, you know that's good and often you know often it, it, it takes something right to uh, to stir up that uh, that that change so you know we are dealing with a different landscape you know networks and I you know I think of my own little little firm where you know we were, we were supporting a handful of networks and and you know suddenly you you multiply that out based on every home network that you're you know suddenly uh uh, technically, is is part of what you have to uh, deal with and 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 help protect. So I'm keen to delve into uh, you know a little bit of the changes that that's uh, that's that's led to. And when we look at uh, we look at cybersecurity, we've had this ongoing resourcing challenge. I th- I think it's you know it's fair to say it's been uh, continuing. And then we drop COVID into the mix, and we now have a nation who's you know, borders are, are you know predominantly closed. Looking at New Zealand, uh, very very similar for for Australia. I think a little bit different in terms of maybe some of the uh, the visas and so on that have been granted on on the Australian side. Able to see quite a, a popularity in terms of uh, visas on that side on a uh, on a tech front. But of course, the borders have been such that not that many people are able to get in and. Uh, both cases so yeah I'm kind of keen to hear some some perspectives on this maybe you know Matthew you know how's that looked for Datacom for your customers what are the learnings how do we uh, how do we keep going if there aren't there aren't enough people available yeah I think maybe to to just talk to your first um, point there for a second in that uh, you know what 
COVID did is really just uh, accelerate a conversation that you know the, the industry was already having with customers about hey, it's no longer enough to to have a perimeter. You know, there was the discussion around defence and depth and protecting your own points and all that. It had been a discussion that had been happening for many years. What what COVID has done, I think, has really moved the discussion along a lot, lot more quickly and it's moved it into a space where it's much more about our identity and um, how we identify devices and people and how we actually use data and much less about, uh, you know, how do we ring fence things. And, and that's still important, but it's, you know, we really have a, a very distributed infrastructure, if that's what you want to call it now, and we've got a, a big task ahead of us to actually secure that. And, and obviously that then plays into the people question because if you're then people constrained and your, your job is even bigger than it used to be, then that's a real challenge. So we're, we've been doing a number of things. I mean, I think previously... Um, the whole tech industry in New Zealand had really benefited from New Zealand being quite an attractive place to come and live and so we had attracted a lot of talent in uh, over the borders and I think we that will happen again once the borders open but it has reminded us that it's also really important to grow talent and, and so we're doing a lot of work in that space and not just in cyber but more widely as well um, working with the local uh, education institutes, uh, working with iwi as well, uh, trying to ensure that people uh, know about the right pathways that they're going into those pathways. So we're seeing some really encouraging success in that area. Uh, um, in Unitech up here and in, um, in ARA down in the South Island, uh, we've got some great cyber diploma programs and things that are, that are bringing people straight into the industry, so that's really cool to see. Uh, and we've got a lot of interns out of those programs already sitting within Datacom Learning some great new skills. So at the moment, um, 15% of my headcount in cyber is just interns, uh, which we're super excited about. That's huge. Yeah, that's yeah. really I, good. I did the count a few days ago. I was like, wow, that's 15%. Uh, and, and look, we'd like to see that grow too. You know, it, uh, Obviously, there's a, there's an overhead for having those people in, in the room, but we, we want them in the room. We want more of them. Um, and, and also graduates. You know, We're employing as many graduates as we can. Um, and in fact, Unitech is, is currently producing more graduates than their current partners can employ in the cyberspace and so I've already reached out to my wider industry contacts and said hey look you know we've got some graduates here are you interested in coming along in this journey and, and, and they are and, and so I think that's an example going back to Sean's earlier point about sharing information around how the industry can work together to actually uh, you know protect the wider country and, and globe you know let's let's actually work together to bring these these people into uh, into cyber security. Yeah, that's fantastic. And um, I remember talking to, um, to to Mark Rees at Zero some weeks back, and uh, we sort of delved into being referred to as the brain gain or the reverse brain drain, and that you know we have that advantage. And I know Australia has seen a similar thing, you know, where where people are sort of coming back from overseas during COVID. A lot of Kiwis that have come home. Have you have you seen that in uh, in the cybersecurity area? Anything sort of noticeable from that perspective? Uh, not not really in my division specifically. Um, potentially in the wider data com, I, I, I couldn't speak to that. I think uh, what we have. Uh, seen is that it's certainly a very tight market because those borders are closed but what I think it has created is that it's um, people have had a bit of a sit down and think had to think about where they want to go to next and so what we have seen is a willingness to retrain into the industry uh, and so a lot of those uh, interns and graduates I was, I was talking about, uh, they're not necessarily straight out of school or out of university they've already had 
uh, careers uh, for several years or, or even many years, and, and then they thought, actually, that looks like a really interesting place to be. Let's retrain and go into that. And so I think that has been a benefit. So although we might not have benefited from people coming back, I think we've benefited from the fact that people have actually had a rethink about where they're going and, and looked at what's out there and, and, and made some decisions based on that. Yeah. Any comments there, Sean? Yeah, look, I think it's an interesting one, just the whole sort of uh, realm of what we sort of really have experienced the last 15 months. And I think it's going to keep on sort of evolving and changing. I think this dependency on people flying into the country to to really sort of complement, augment sort of the workforce that we've got, I think it's going to be something that will continue to be challenged for some time. Uh, And I'm I'm the eternal optimist. I'm not trying to say that the the pandemic (laughs) is going to continue for too long. Uh, I prefer it wouldn't. But I think it's just going to be one of those things that we need to start thinking about, you know, what are some of those different models that are out there? And I loved what, uh, what some of the points were that Matt was sort of going through. But I think as we continue to sort of evolve and go through all of this, we need to start looking at what are some other ways? How do I complement the work that my security team are doing? You know, a managed security services, something that, you know, more organizations should really be taking up. Uh, and it's really around how do we just change that paradigm? If it's the, so let's just call it the warm bodies that are sort of coming to the office and sort of doing those things, kind of also challenge that notion as well, because that's where you get that challenge where we've got a cybersecurity skill shortage. And, you know, again, sometimes that's, that's, a, that's an interesting point because if we train 7 billion people on the planet to be cybersecurity professionals, we probably would still lose. And the reason I say that is what are we actually training them on and throwing people into kind of a machine fight, I think we're going to be losing because the adversary is using, you know, and automating their tools to launch attacks against us. We need to be using automation as well. So how do we start to think about a different way to solve some of these problems? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's that's absolutely key. And, you know, we we do you know talk a lot about automation and artificial intelligence and it, it taking jobs away. But when we, I think when you look at it and, you know, varying concepts, uh, varying areas and cybersecurity, you know, I think it's just an absolutely perfect example where what we are trying to do to defend our organisations, our uh, country, um, you know, these things can't be done by by just people, right? And of course, the attackers will be using, you know, whatever they can get their hands on in terms of, you know, automation, artificial intelligence, any smart things they can come up with. And, you know, if that's not happening on the defence side, then, uh, yeah, the the results are going to be fairly predictable, I, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah. I think, uh, absolutely. And I think Sean touched on an important point there before too, where, um, you know, these attackers can, can reuse... Uh, whatever they've come up with across lots of um, potential targets and it's really profitable for them so of course they're going to invest whatever they need to up front in order to be able to make the tech and then they're going to reuse it and in some respects we have to take the same approach on the defence side where we need to be able to defend lots of organisations uh, using the same capability and, and that's that's certainly what we're trying to achieve within the managed security space is being able to uh, leverage the same group of people and tool sets and capabilities and processes across lots of customers and, and really drive that efficiency but also you know again to Sean's point around automation and AI and, and you know not just trying to throw people at it all the time that is that is so important uh, you know one of the big investments that we're making in this financial year is more in that AI and automation space for cybersecurity, and look, uh, as far as we can see, that that's going to carry on for a number of years. Yet, yeah, that, that that will be a huge play for us. Yeah, I mean, it, 
yeah, I think it's uh, it's absolutely essential, and the the resourcing issue in terms of people just really, you know, shines that extra you know light on it, and the idea of you know, organisations necessarily trying to do all of these things in, internally versus using a managed security provider. It, I don't know. I mean, in, in in the early years of my career, there was a window there where I worked internally within an organisation doing you know doing IT, and which was a you know a break for me from you know having having worked serving a whole lot of organisations. And and what I quickly recognised was boring. I'm getting you know only access to seeing what goes on in, in you know one or two organisations. And my skills were going to go stale if I just, um, you know, stayed with that very, you know, very, very small, tight, you know, client base. And, you know, I recognise that if you're going to stay on the cutting cutting edge and stay uh, stay current in technology as, as somebody that works in the space, you need to be looking across and involved with, with lots and lots of organisations. And I think, you know, the reverse applies to... You know, certainly in cybersecurity, and I know there, are, you know, certainly um, you know cases where 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 it does, you know, it works well for organisations having internal teams and and resources and so on. But cybersecurity, probably more than any other area I can think of, you need people that have the experience of, you know, what happens when something goes wrong. What are the absolute best practice mechanisms? tools and technologies that that you can use and uh, use them across a, a, a broad set rather than yeah I'm just kind of learning because my company's just you know just bought this uh, this tool and uh, you know I'm the the guy or the gal that's been uh, tasked with figuring it out and um, and applying that technology I, I'm sure we've got some listeners that, that, that may be uncomfortable with what I'm saying but uh, I, you know, I, th- I, th- I think, um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot to be said for maybe, re- you know, rethinking how we do, uh, so, you know, some of these things. I, I think it's a really big ask uh, for any internal cybersecurity team to do it all by themselves. So, so even if an organisation chooses to have an internal team, uh, you know, they're, they're almost always going to need augmentation um, because there's just such a lot to get across. Uh, you know, it's a lot of training to do, and which you touched on as well. Um, but we also talk, talked earlier about that need for information sharing, and to do that within a small team, a single organisation, is tough. I mean, we ingest an enormous amount of telemetry, and then reuse that across lots of organisations. And you know, our partners like Palo Alto help us do that. But we have to use multiple partners in order to to get that level of telemetry required. So I think you know it is a really big big ask. My kind of rough rule of thumb is that if you're an organisation of anything less than ten thousand seats, then uh, you're you're really pushing it uphill to to try and run it security internally. And even those organisations that are over ten thousand seats, it's still a big ask to be be doing it doing it alone. Yeah, I could ask all sorts of questions around what state for organisations that have have been hit, but maybe not particularly sort of helpful to um, to, to delve into that. But I guess my my general feeling is, as a, a country, as a region, you know, maybe this is just the same everywhere. You know, our standard is too low from a cyber security you know perspectives within most organisations. And that we do need to uh, we do need to step up and yeah that um, you know, I guess people have got these messages around COVID but and they realise the importance because they they know that their lives are at risk but have we kind of got that 
that broader message about cybersecurity. I mean, we haven't had um, you know government messages on TV and and things just uh, pushed at us. So, you know, can we change that, Sean? Are we is there a uh, is there an opportunity to you know lift lift that bar in a in a manner? You know that's that's more widespread than is than what's been happening at the moment to kind of, you know, lift the overall. What's the, what's the term? Cyber wellness. I've I've heard said. Um, <laughs> you know, to uh, to to be in a in a much a much more robust position. Yeah. Look, I, I think absolutely there is an opportunity, um, and I think the opportunity is there for us every single day to actually sort of grab hold of it. Uh, I think a big mentality that we actually just have to change or just really sort of a mindset is just do something different you know and i'd kind of would question one sort of key thing and i'm not just say that we've actually done something wrong but for the last let's just say 30 years dealing with cybersecurity challenges and risks to an organization would you really put hand on heart and say that we've actually nailed it we've, we've absolutely smashed it and i'd probably say no we haven't so I think a lot of the times when we talk about sort of that skill shortage and what we need to do and sort of do things differently, I think it also means let's also start with a couple of key things. Let's stop looking for the unicorn because that person that has 25 different certifications, 10 years experience, you know, must be security cleared with government uh, organizations and the like, and you've got to pay them, you know, let's just say $50,000 a year. That doesn't exist. So let's stop looking for that person. Let's also stop looking in the same well. Because we tend to keep on looking for people that are they're working one security one organisation today doing security. Let's grab them, poach them. They get poached with someone else. So we just keep on looking for the same people all the time. We look keep on looking at the same people. I think what we need to do is let's just go find the people that are problem solvers by nature. They're curious. They've got the curious minds. Let's teach them security. I think one of the big things that we probably have been struggling for years is we keep on seeing security as a technology problem. And it's a lot more than that. It's a broader problem. So I think we need to even have people that are translators, you know, someone that can convert technical to business, business to technical. These are not really things that are taught that often. And there's not that many people that are, that are great at it or, or many people that are out there. So I think we just need to start thinking about what is the problem that we believe we're going to see for the next 30 years, as opposed to using the playbook of, well, if that's what we saw the last 30, more than likely we're going to see that again exponentially. And that's where I just challenge the notion of let's do something different because I think we could actually solve this problem collectively, but it starts with you. It starts with every other person that's out there and we just have to start to you know, create that momentum slowly, slowly. Matthew, you've got thoughts on uh, how we change uh, change tech and yeah. uh, you know do better at the, the education and then you know ultimately the, the results at the other end? I think I think Sean's point about just doing something different really resonates, and, and one of the reasons for that is because a lot of what we see in organisations that have either already been breached or are really struggling to lift their maturity is that their biggest hurdle is a cultural change, and it's about treating risk differently. You know. Uh, especially around information risk and privacy risk. We saw that change in Australia and New Zealand around um, health and safety. It took a long time, but, you know, we we got together, we did the work, there was was right legislation put in place, someone argued or went too far. Um, But at the end of the day, we're we're in a much better place health and safety-wise than we were three, four decades ago, and we need that similar kind of cultural shift with cyber. I think we're starting to see it. We're starting to see a bit more visibility at board level. It's been taken more seriously the the investment in cyber has grown but there, there's a lot more cultural change that needs to happen and I think what's particularly uh, disappointing is that we still see a lot of the basics not done right 
and you know if we can even if we could just do the basics better uh, we would be uh, we would be in a much better place than what we are now yeah I've, yeah I, th- I think you know anybody that's kind of you know looked at, you know across a, a reasonable number of New Zealand organizations and look at the you know the state we're in would you know, definitely have seen that yeah basics are often you know really 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 not looked at and yeah I don't, I, I don't know how you um, necessarily can address that at pace other than when we get these big incidents that um, you know that that help those who are who are trying to bring the change you know get the message across so there's there is a flip side to the bad things that happen and that it does help bring about that change um what what about at um, you know we talked a little bit about governance at the board level and and that it's you know these things are starting to get taken a bit more seriously at that level but there certainly doesn't seem to be any legislation within certainly within New Zealand that's sort of got any teeth that says hey if as a director of this firm you don't care about this stuff and XYZ sort of happens and you're going to be held accountable yet we look to say Europe with their general GDPR. data protection regulations GDPR and you know there's there's quite hefty sort of fines on the organizations and and you know I think on the individuals as well where where they have you know they have issues and you know there's been some some reasonably large sort of fines handed down and there is, I think, you know, there's 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 a real interconnection between these two because you have a cyber incident, and particularly when when an organisation says I'm not paying the ransom, and in current world we're in, if you don't pay a ransom, then there's a there's a very high likelihood that data is actually going to get leaked. But we certainly don't have any sort of any teeth locally within New Zealand anyway, legally that sort of you know really has directors thinking, boy. I better do something about this. We have it in health and safety where, where yep. lives are at stake. But this has a big flow on. If we don't get cybersecurity right, um, then it impacts our overall economy. It impacts, you know, the flow on from, from, from that in terms of, you know, we can either fix poverty or we can go backwards. All of these things potentially are interconnected. So should we do something more on that front? I, th- I think we absolutely should. I, I think it is a mixture of the carrot and the stick, though. I um, mean, the recent change to the privacy legislation was encouraging, but you know, as you pointed out, it doesn't really have a lot of teeth. You know, maximum fine of $10,000. A couple of years beforehand, Australia made their, their legislative change. I'm sure you might be able to correct me here, but I think it's $100,000. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a big difference. And, and $100,000 looks looks a lot bigger figure when it's, when it's written on a piece of paper as well. Um, so we do need a bit more of the stick and not just externally to the organisations but internally as well you know what are the consequences within an organisation of actually doing things poorly like missing a patch cycle or missing two or three patch cycles which is what we often see um, but I think there's there's a, um, a lot more understanding of the carrot that's needed too, and and that's the real value of doing cyber right. You know, not losing your intellectual property out of an organisation, um, being able to move faster without the fear of things getting leaked or, or falling over. Um, you know, being ahead of your your competition in a in a competitive market, and um, being able to attract the right kind of staff. Uh, you know, looking good in the press. There's, there's lots of value that that we can get out of cyber, and so I think there's a there's a bigger discussion around that that needs to happen. As well, that, yeah, that's a great point because yeah, if you're if you're stuck on sort of old systems, old technology, the the way that impacts and allows you to operate as a business um, or any sort of organisation 
it's you know it's like carrying a big dead weight um, for the organisation, and so for yeah, sure. you you get the you do the, go through the right sort of digital transformation processes that you know include thinking around cyber. And there's also all sorts of wins, and it, um, you know, I guess, yeah, ultimately has a uh, a big win from a financial perspective, and and all those other sort of flow-ons when your organisation's in a in a great place. I love that that perspective. Sean, yeah. have you you given some thought to that? Yeah, absolutely. I look, I, I absolutely agree. I think I think it's it's definitely something that's key. But you know, let's be clear that if we don't if we don't take the time to actually pay down our technology debt. At some point in time, it's going to be a very big payback that we have to sort of give. So, you know, to make those, you know, slow and steady uh, strides to actually make the change happen, you have to be doing that. We can't turn around and say, oh, you know, this has been a bit of a harder year. Let's spend less on, you know, security or technology or or something like that. We've got to be a little bit pragmatic as well. If you think about just the shift alone at the start of the pandemic, you know, people en masse started to move out to public land infrastructures because they just wanted to find a better way to, you know, to keep on selling their products and services and digitize, you know, a lot of the work they were doing. You know, fast forward the first 10 months of the pandemic, we saw the greatest amount of, uh, or the greatest influx of movement to public cloud than we'd seen in the previous 10 years. So just those numbers alone are just staggering when you start to stop down and stop and think about it. So I think that's a key thing. Uh, in terms of, you know, when regulation is not around, be prepared because it's going to be coming around the corner. I'm not trying to say that, you know, we must have the stick and the sticks needs to sort of come whacking out people or anything like that. But the reality is we've actually seen that some people probably haven't spent the time to actually, you know, correct some of the challenges that they've actually got inside their own organization. If you think about where we've also seen, you know, how that the attacks have also shifted and changed somewhat as well. If you've got any type of operational technology that's inside your own organization, so think of, you know, think of critical infrastructure or think of you running like an energy sector or some sort of utility plant. The reality is if you've got some sort of cyber attack that takes place, that has a physical implication as well. You could literally start to, you're risking lives at that point. And are we trying to say that a law needs to come out that reflects totally on cyber? Or to your point, you know, that's part of the occupational health and safety challenges. Those lines are getting more and more blurred every single time. So the time to act is now because we are more interconnected than we've ever been before. We will continue to go down that path. So I think we just need to keep thinking about it, that this is something that as we propel our businesses forward and work out what's the better way and the place that we want to get to, what's the, how are we de-risking that process every single time? Yeah, that's good. Now, Sean, maybe just if we've got any listeners that don't understand what technology debt or technical debt is, um, can you maybe just delve into an explanation there? Yeah, so a good example of technology debt is I use a piece of technology today and, you know, software is software. There's always going to be some sort of vulnerability or a challenge or a bug that's popped up. So I need to constantly keep on doing that maintenance. And that means like rolling out patches and the like. And if I'm not using the latest and greatest technology, if I'm not applying the, the maintenance updates that are actually there, I'm kind of always going to be sitting behind, you know, multiple versions, multiple patches. And that just creates a further exposure to your own organization. You know, I, I still hear it today that some people are using Windows XP as an example. And you think that's been around for 20 plus years and is probably completely riddled with vulnerabilities. There are no longer any patches that are out there. That is the biggest exposure you could have. And because you haven't decided to make the, the inroads to say, let's actually move away from XP, 
I've got this massive debt. And at some point in time, because I need to leapfrog so many different versions, it's probably going to cost me a lot more to do that. It's like going for your service and thinking, I need to change my brake pads. And all of a sudden, you find out that you've got some transmission problems and you're missing a tire or something like that. You know, the more that we start to do those maintenance, the more that we can start to work out and prevent that bigger problem up ahead in the future. Great. Excellent explanation. Now, I've got some, some stats here that kind of, um, they won't necessarily surprise everybody, but but they, they are sort of shocking in their, in their own way. Um, these are from Forrester. 31% of employees still admit to going around security policies. 53% say that their leadership team has not made security a social norm. We've got 51% state that they have better things to do than attend the uh, the the appropriate education sessions when it comes to uh, cyber security. So we we have some real you know challenges there in terms of getting everybody on board and on the same page, and you know thinking about this stuff day to day. How do how do we address that? Is there an answer? I don't think there's a there's one answer. Um, it's it's a real challenge, I and mean, it is something that we struggle with uh, all the time. Uh, you know, it's something that we work with our customers to resolve. Uh, and, and obviously, there's a there's a technology side to help this problem, and then there's the people side. I think uh, it does need a lot more focus within organisations, and it comes comes back to that cultural change that we were talking about before, and and also that mixture of carrot and stick. I think if organisations are really serious about it. They do need to ensure their staff understand why it's important, um, but there also needs to be some consequences. You know, if you're a repeat offender, um, either not doing the training or repeatedly failing the phishing test when it's sent out, then there needs to be some consequences to that. And, and very few organisations have that in place. And I, I think we would start to see uh, change happen quite rapidly if, if that was coming down from the leadership right throughout the organisation. So on that front, what do you do at Datacom? Have you got a? Have you got a? You know, if somebody clicks twice, have you have you got a solution to this one? Yeah. So the, so we have a discussion with those people. Uh, yeah. So they literally get a phone call or a visit to the desk uh, if they, well, even if they click once, actually. Yeah. And so and, and we're testing our staff all the time. So we we send out efficient tests. Some of them are actually very good. I had to read one twice recently before I realised it was a test. Um, but that is exactly the kind of thing that every organisation needs to be doing. And, and and look, we we can all do better. I'm certainly not saying that we're perfect, but there, there has to, the staff people involved have to know that, uh, that either they've, they've not passed the test and they need to do some more training or that there are consequences or at least at the very least to understand why we do this. You know, why is it important? Because, because often I think that piece is missing. Yeah, yeah, no, you, you, you're dead right. Sean, any tricks or um, uh, sticks that you've seen on, in, re, in regards to uh, the training? Yeah, look, I think, I, think game, I think organizations that are leveraging gamification are definitely ones that are, um, you know, thinking about it a little bit differently. Because uh, I think the approach is, you know, think about security awareness training is typically being, you know, uh, we've got to do the annual compliance, tick in the box, you know, just hit next for, uh, 10 times and all of a sudden you're cyber compliant, so to speak, for your organization. doesn't really solve anything. Uh, so I think this is where definitely needs to be a top-down approach. Organizations need to really be setting the tone from the leadership level down. And the reason for that is we look up to our leaders. And if they're not, you know, practicing, uh, you know, how to actually be that... Uh, I was as the cyber safe employee, then you know people are going to follow suit and just go. Well, if they don't do it, why am I going to do it? 
Uh, yeah. So I think we need to sort of call that one out. I think the other thing is let's actually reward success. It's, it's actually a good thing when people turn around and go, I think I've actually done something wrong. You know, so take the example of the fishing test. You know, you want people to turn around and go and make a little bit of a healthy rivalry. You don't have to single out individuals. Obviously, a manager could do that directly, but create that sort of departmental healthy rivalry to say, you know, this time around, the marketing team were uh, number one. Uh, no one clicked on it or, you know, the, this particular group here, the product managers, well, they were the ones that clicked on it within the first 15 seconds. You know, let's learn from that. And, and pretty quickly, you start to see different patterns of behavior. You know, I, I've got the privilege of actually seeing our and having oversight to our own internal security program. And I love seeing the email that comes out at five o'clock in the morning that's actually testing people. Because what's the first thing you do when you grab your phone in the morning? You, sorry, first thing you do in the morning, grab your phone. People are half asleep. They're clicking on an email. They're clicking on a link. And all of a sudden, it's like, you've, we've got you. You know, and that's the thing. We just want to try and change that behavior. Is it the only thing you do? No. So we need to think about, again, people, process, and technology. And let's keep on sort of shifting the balance every single time. But make it fun. Make it enjoyable. Love it, love it. Such a good point. Yeah, I think that gamification really helps. You know, I've seen a couple of organisations do that kind of leaderboard type approach, and great idea. We should definitely do more of that. Yep. That's cool. Now, I want to change tack. I've got some stats to do with our cloud workloads, right? And um, COVID has been this time, as as was was raised, where a whole lot of things have been uh, moved to the cloud, and you know, generally for very, very good reasons to, uh, to, to do this. But I've got these, these stats that I wanted to uh, cover off. Apparently 70% of organisations um, hosting um, data or workloads in the public cloud have experienced a security incident. I don't think that's too much of a surprise to most of us because, look, you know, everybody gets targeted and at some point in time everybody gets hit. But when you actually hear the numbers, it's, um, it does actually sort of slap you in the, in the face a little bit. Uh, 44% of organisations stated that data loss or leakage was one of their uh, top three security concerns. And two-thirds of organisations apparently leave back doors open to attackers uh, through misconfigured cloud services. Um that is a really, really high figure, but I think it just does r- reflect that this stuff is not is not easy to do, and that the pace in which organisations move today means there are new things being fired up, you know, in the public cloud all the time. So, inevitably, if you're not cautious enough and you don't have the right mechanisms in place, then you're going to le- be leaving some things wide open so you know it seems really clear that you know protecting what what we put in the cloud really needs you know needs needs some effort in terms of you know make, making sure that we uh, we you know we address these risks that we've um, we've talked about Sean I'm keen to hear from you in terms of how does how does Palo Alto as a um, you know a security vendor um, mm-hmm. basically look at these sorts of challenges and then build into your roadmap to you know to help organisations out? How do we how do you you know make make sure that you're you're helping people with these challenges? Yeah, look, absolutely, and probably just to add another statistic to sort of you know the round out the, the why we sort of do what we do. You know, I think that to a large extent, many people still believe that there's kind of a blurred line between what's their responsibility versus what's the responsibility of the cloud service provider. And there really is a shared responsibility, you know, and the best way to think about it is anything you put into the cloud, you need to protect it. The, the service provider is really going to think about protecting their own infrastructure, the platform they're actually using. 
So there's a number of different capabilities that are really needed uh, when you're actually sort of moving out to public cloud. And that could be something like the traditional lift and shift of what we saw at the start. So people building applications out in the cloud, leveraging containers, leveraging infrastructure as code, making it and really sort of using that sort of automation piece and the elasticity that the cloud really sort of offers. But at every single point, we need to go off and buy technology to actually help us achieve that. So you think about that continuous improvement, continuous uh, development pipeline that's actually there. We need to ensure that we're putting security early on into that build process and not just simply relying at the end. Once I've created the application and it's running, great, turn it on and put the security on. When you think about how do we actually stop these problems before they become an issue? So as a company over the last number of years, we've really started to build out a capability where we said, we're going to go and buy the best technology that's actually out on the market right now because lo and behold, you will actually need to buy all these different types of capabilities. But the challenge that we've actually seen for the number of years with security is, as an industry, we've actually forced organizations to become the plumbers. They have to grab all these different solutions and try and work out how they, you know, jimmy them all together and try and sort of get the solutions to work inside their own environment. So we said, let's take that problem away. So we basically built a platform using technologies that we had acquired through organic growth as well. And we started to build out the platform where you say, from cradle to grave, when you go through your maturity process out in public cloud, irrespective of what cloud it is. So multi-cloud purpose, where every organization is really multi-cloud and hybrid, let's actually secure everything. So make it uniformed in terms of what the security looks like, have the ability that you can mature along the process without needing to buy extra technologies every single time, but at the same time, give it that same look and feel. So whether you're using Google's GCP platform or AWS or Azure, you can simply say, this is the way that I want to roll out security and make it uniformed and make it consistent across the board because consistency or lack of consistency is the part that ends up killing most security programs because they're just not got eyes on screen. They can't really see what's going on. And that's how we try and solve the problem of thinking about where is the problem today? Where do we think it's going to go? And right now, I'd say that many times people are over-provisioning access to different um, systems they've actually got out there. They're not changing that. They're not revoking the privileges that have actually been granted. And that's where a cyber attacker comes and says, great, thank you. I've just now compromised your account, Paul, and I've got access to the keys of the kingdom. Yeah, I think that's that's a, that's a great point. And it's not easy to to take the other approach, is it? Which is to you know completely limit access and give it exactly where you, where you need it. But it is the right it is the right approach. And um, yeah, the the default often is uh, is kind of up, upside down from that perspective. Yeah, yeah. I think you know with the cloud having grown so quickly, there's still that. I think a mismatch in understanding, which, which Sean touched on around, hey, we can do this stuff and we can do it securely. The reality is that so much of what's out there is, is not configured well. And that's where a lot of those stats that you've touched on, Paul, come from, is, is poorly configured cloud. And, and, but even when we do have well-configured cloud, we still need that safety net. So we need, you know, we need the good hygiene, we need the good process around setting up privileged accounts and all that kind of thing. And we need the tools in place with, with trained people, you know, watching and using those tools, and, and all of those have to be working together to actually se- secure the cloud. And in many cases, none of them are happening. I um, mean, so you know, there's there's lots of holes in that. Yeah, Sean, um, you know, for for Palo Alto, the, the, there's sort of that history of a lot of acquisitions, which seems to be mm-hmm. you know quite quite a you know a key part of just the way things work today. To get you know, you get the the best and brightest as you you know you acquire those that are uh, that are starting up. New firms, but you know we've seen uh, we've seen 
I guess some you know technology companies that do these acquisitions, but it takes you know years for them to uh, to really kind of you know join up the dots and 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 get that working together, and then sometimes it's a complete failure anyway. How has that uh, side of things sort of been playing out for for Palo Alto from what you've seen over the over the last few years? Yeah, look, totally agree on your, I guess, the perspective and observation of, of how other organisations have done it. I think what makes us different and set us apart is the fact that, you know, for 16 years now as a company, we've really fundamentally believed in how do we create a, a natively integrated platform that can fundamentally solve and collapse a number of these different security services that are actually needed out there. So if I think about what we've done with Public Cloud, we went out and acquired a company called Evident.io, which was really focused on doing kind of that audit compliance on AWS. But again, it was just simply just AWS as the cloud service provider. We then went and acquired a company called Redlock, uh, which was really focused on doing this multi-cloud, so looking at GCP, AWS, and Azure. Within uh, 40 days, we basically ported over everything that was in Evident into the Redlock platform and in turn, turned that into our Prisma Cloud offering that we've actually got today. We then went out and acquired uh, capability, which is, fo- uh, which is called Twistlock and PureSec, which are focused on container security and serverless security. And again, it took us three months to port that capability over into that platform. And from there, we've acquired more and more technology. So for us, what you probably can see there is we're not sitting on our hands at all uh, during this process. We're actively saying, let's actually work out what are the bits of code that we need? How do we ensure that we're not just simply jamming some sort of Frankenstein-like solution together, but really working out how do we get the efficiencies, the gains that are actually there and if there's overlap great what are the cool pieces that we actually need what complements what we've already got today we acquired most recent acquisition that we acquired was a company called bridge crew which is focused on infrastructure as code so really working closely with the devops team inserting ourselves early on to that sort of build process we've already got some of that capability but we just said great let's actually complement that let's augment it and turn it into something that's even better and i think as we see cloud is just constantly keeps on changing all the time uh you know cloud service providers are coming out with a brand new APIs all the time. There's brand new ways that people think about moving from APIs to microservices. The containers are being leveraged a lot more than the lift and shift approach. We're just seeing this natural change that's constantly happening out there. So for us, it's all about innovating, constantly keeping on putting new capabilities there at the fingertips of our customers and just really giving them that that kind of one central place they can go to and they've got all this extra capability that's there each and every time. So for us, we're not sitting back and, and sort of waiting for, you know, build it and they will come. It's all about build it and we're going to keep on sort of reinventing ourselves and challenging ourselves and challenging what status quo really means every time. Good. That's uh, that's a actually pretty uh, pretty good story you got there, Sean. Yeah, um, that's you. cool. Well, maybe we'll leave the final word with Matthew. We're we're sort of you know coming to an end, but yeah, any any final thoughts that that you wanted to to share? Probably all I'd say is that. I've got a huge amount of optimism for this industry. So I think uh, a lot of the times we hear the, the kind of FUD, a fear, uncertainty, doubt. And yes, there's some bad stuff happening out there. And yes, there's a lot of catching up to do, which you know, which we've touched on. But I think if we start to approach this differently, we make an ongoing investment in how we protect our organisations. We work together uh, more, like Sean was saying earlier. You know, we, we can make some, some really impressive advances. And we'll start to see that happen already. But, uh, you know, we need to make some further big leaps and, and I think we can absolutely do that so let's get on with the job um, you know we, we want to work with New Zealand and Australian organisations and, and help them make those, those leaps forward. Excellent well thanks everyone for joining us this week on the New Zealand Tech Podcast it's been great to have you on the show and listening in a big thank you to to Matthew and to Sean really uh, really appreciated thank your you. expertise and yeah you've certainly got 
a lot there, and I thought we we hopefully covered the best points that'll uh, fill in some good gaps for uh, for our listeners. So um, yeah, really appreciate that. Thank you to our show partners. Thank you to um, Umbrella Connect, Datacom, and uh, and Palo Alto, Vodafone, Vocus, Spark, and HP. Really appreciate. All of these organisations that stand behind the New Zealand Tech Podcast um, and behind the, the technology and innovation ecosystems here in New Zealand and help us um, get the word out. So, uh, yeah, much appreciated, and we'll look forward to catching everybody on the next episode. Cheers, Paul. Cheers. Thanks, Paul. New Zealand Tech Podcast, the voice of the tech community, proudly supported by Umbrella Connect.